0: Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Really, we're starting the, the final chapter in this Philippians study. And really, if there's a theme to chapter 4, it's the fact that Christ is our strength. The Bible says in Psalm 46.1 that the Lord is a refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. And that's an important truth for us to remember in times of turmoil and stress and Conflict and and struggle and really anything that would seek to rob you of peace. In fact, the big idea behind today's message is that in difficult times, we rejoice, pray, and give thanks as God grants us peace and guards our lives in Christ Jesus. You know, it's been said that ulcers are what you get from climbing mountains over mole hills or that worry is the interest you pay on troubles that might not ever come. Or as Vance Havner once said, worry's like a rocking chair. Give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. Now, our English word worry actually comes from an an Anglo-Saxon word that means to strangle or to choke. And if we let it, I mean, worry can certainly strangle us um, emotionally, spiritually. Now, according to Warren Wiersbe, the Greek word in our text today for worry or to be anxious, as some of your English translations will say, it literally means to be torn apart. So it's important for us as Christians to learn to abandon worry and to seek peace, peace rather. Well, in this passage today in Philippians chapter 4, we're really presented with a clear path from problems to peace. In the context of Paul's letter to the Philippians, though, the specific problem that he addressed actually involved two church members who were at odds with one another. But here in verses 1 through 3, Paul gives us some, well, he gives us, number one, some practical pointers for a problem. Verse two, he says, I urge Eodea and I urge Centuke to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. So there's two faithful women in the church who were quarreling. And apparently, you know, what started as a personal squabble had begun to affect the entire church. And that really had the potential of dividing the fellowship of this Philippian uh, congregation. And so it it carried with it a couple of problems. First of all, a tainted camaraderie. Uh, Look at verse 1. Paul refers to this church as, My dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown. So clearly, the church at Philippi had been a delight to Paul, a constant joy, a source of refreshing and encouragement, and the closeness of the relationship that he shared with them was demonstrated by their continuing concern for Paul. They had sent Epaphroditus to Rome to to check on Paul's condition, and Epaphroditus had also brought some, some love gifts to Paul from the church in Philippi. And so they truly were his joy and crown, but With his coming, Epaphroditus also reports that these two women's quarrel having spilled over into the the church, the sweet fellowship had had kind of been tainted. And as is often the case, personal problems between church members end up becoming church-wide problems. Now, Paul knows that these are strong-willed women. And he shows no favoritism in dealing with them. He says, I urge Eodea, and I urge Sintuke. He pleads with each one of them so that neither the of them is going to think that he's blaming her specifically for the problem. And he pleads with them to agree with each other because they also had a common basis for resolving their problem since each one of them is in the Lord, as he says in verse 2. So their, their quarrel really carried not only the potential for tainted camaraderie but also for a tarnished legacy. You see, the great legacy of the Philippian church is hinted at really, really here in verse three, where Paul says, help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers." It's obvious that the Philippian church had been very aggressive in spreading the gospel in Macedonia. Those faithful believers there had contended at Paul's side for the sake of the gospel. And so the heritage of this church was was one of a very strong evangelistic witness to a pagan world. But the quarrel between these two church members, this quarrel sweeping into the church, had tarnished the legacy of this great mission-minded church. Now, that does actually raise a very important question for us. What does make a church great? Well, I can tell you, it's not soft seats and subdued light. It's strong, courageous leadership. It's not the sweet tones of the piano, but sweet personalities that reflect Jesus. It's not Grecian columns and stained glass domes, but it's a lofty vision of its people. It's not big budgets, but big hearts. It's not the amount of offering received, but the amount of service rendered. Not the large membership, but God's presence and His direction in power. It's not what we've done in the past. It's what the church is doing right now and what it's going to do tomorrow. You see, those are the things that create a legacy of faith. And those are the very things that are being threatened here in the church at Philippi. Strong, courageous leaders were now being divided. The reflection of Jesus, its people once had, was now going dim. Its lofty vision was being obscured by this this schism, and big hearts were being replaced with with smallness of spirit. God's presence, his, his direction, his power had been felt there, but now the church's spiritual power was being squandered on things that really didn't matter. And so, Paul urged him, agree, with one another in the Lord. And then after having addressed the problem in the church, Paul moved on to describe a second thing. Number two this morning, if you're taking notes, a prescription for peace in the heart. Look at verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to god and so paul gives us here a prescription for peace for both the believer and the church but there are several requirements to receive that peace first of all it requires the right perspective rejoice in the lord always paul says i will say it again rejoice You know, there's a lot of things in life that can rob us of our cheer. Doubt, death, challenges at work, illness, relational difficulties, numerous other problems can cause Christians to lose their song. But we don't have to lose our joy. Why? Because we don't rejoice in our circumstances, we rejoice in the Lord. You see, you get to choose your own attitude. You decide what perspective to adopt when it comes to those things that might cause you to worry. You make the choice, the choice to rejoice. In fact, there's an old sing-songy chorus that we used to sing way back in the day, and it's still true. It's amazing what praising can do. There's something very powerful about praise, something that's very therapeutic, that unlocks joy. And so rejoice, Paul says, because he knew it's impossible for Christians to, to coddle their worries and still rejoice in the Lord at the same time. Now, not only is that word rejoice in the imperative mood in the Greek, which means Paul's actually stating it as a command, but in order to drive his point home, He says it twice now you would think that the counsel that Paul is giving would sound strange coming from his lips I mean Paul Paul remember was not riding from a beach house by the ocean with the calming lull of ocean waves in the background or from some cabin in the mountains facing peaceful uh, majestic snow covered mountain peaks Paul was riding from Roman imprisonment. And yet twice, he says, rejoice. You know, even though his future was uncertain, Paul had more to say about joy and rejoicing in this letter to the Philippians than anything else he ever wrote. In fact, he had learned from experience that rejoicing puts a song In the heart, puts a smile on your face, puts a a spring in your step. Plus, he knew that the Philippian believers desperately needed a new attitude. They needed a new perspective if peace was going to return to that fellowship. Now, there's some requirements necessary for that to happen. You see, the right perspective requires the right principle Look at the beginning of verse five, let your graciousness be known to everyone. So he's talking about a spirit of of graciousness. Now that word graciousness in the original text, it, it means not insisting on the rights of every letter of the law, but instead yielding, gentle, kind. So it carries with it the idea of a gentle spirit with others. It's the opposite of being self-seeking or or, or being contentious like these women that we discussed earlier. (laughs) There was once a woman who was bitten by an animal that turned out to be rabid. But by the time she actually sought out medical attention, it was too late for her. The doctor said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. Puzzled, she said, what am I going to do? Surely there's something I can do. The doctor replied, if I were you, I would make a list of all those people that you've wronged, all the people who have wronged you, and in the time you have remaining, go and make peace with them. She went home. She considered his counsel. That night, her husband found her with a legal pad, feverishly writing out name after name. He said, so are you going to take the doctor's advice and go make peace with those people? She said, no, I'm going to go bite every one of them. (laughs) That is not making your graciousness known. (laughs) These two quarrelsome ladies in Philippi, they had not been gentle, had not been gracious with one another. If they had, this quarrel never would have come between them in the first place. So Paul, he's commanding the Philippians here and and us by extension to forsake divisive, quarrelsome spirits and to cultivate a spirit of gentleness and kindness towards one another. And you know, Jesus displayed that same principle perfectly throughout his life and ministry including his attitude toward those people who actually reviled him, those people who literally crushed him. And we're called to be like Jesus. And so that's why Paul says in Philippians 4, 5, that believers should display this gentle, gracious spirit with one another. And when we abide by this principle, you know what happens? Anger is driven out and kindness replaces it boastfulness is driven out and humility replaces it self-centeredness is driven out and concern for others replaces it do you know doing so requires not only the right principle but also the right position look at the end of verse 5 the Lord is near now what did Paul mean by that well he might have been speaking of the Lord's return he may have been drawing attention to the fact that, that God is with us, that He's always nearby. He's ready to assist us. Now, both of those are certainly true. But either way, what you and I have to do is we need to evaluate our, our actions, our position, either you know, in relation to where we stand to Christ's heart, or in light of where we stand in the big picture of God's Timetable. You know, specifically, how we are going to redeem the time that we have left. Because Jesus is coming back. And His return should really cause us to want to live holy lives. While at the same time, knowing that Christ is near, should encourage us to call on Him for help, for direction, but personal peace requires not only the right perspective, the right principle, the right position, but it also requires the right process. Look at verse six. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, Paul's instructions here, it might actually catch us a little bit off guard don't worry about anything? Now, of course, a degree of worry, and what I really mean more specifically is a degree of concern, is actually a positive thing when it it motivates us to carry out our responsibilities. But negative worry, what, what Paul's talking about, that's a whole different thing. Because that kind of worry always deals with the future. You know, something that we can't always foresee, something we can't manipulate, something we can't control. And that negative worry can just sometimes squeeze out our joy. It can immobilize us. You know, worries are kind of like false prophets that try to tell us God isn't good, God's not in control, God's not wise. But instead of worry... What did Paul call us to do? Pray. To pray. In fact, Paul actually began his letter to the Philippians with a joy-filled prayer. Chapter 1, verse 4. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. And now he's instructing his readers to pray in the face of worry. All right, so let's drill down a little further here. What are the practical steps we need to take to battle worry in our lives? Well, here's the first thing. I think we need to admit that anxiety isn't for us. Anxiety is not for you, believer. Accept the reality that a Christian shouldn't have a heart filled with worry. Paul very simply said, don't worry about anything. And so worry should no more be a part of a Christian's life than gossip or envy or coveting or sexual sin. So see, it for some, see that for, for the thing that it is, something that needs to be cast aside. Oh, and after you cast aside worry, here's what you do. You cast all your cares on God. See, the most basic remedy for worry For anxiety is prayer. Now think about this. God never worries. That's because God's in control. And because God's in control, we can carry our burdens to him in prayer. We can lay it at his feet and let him deal with it. As Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting your cares on him because he cares for you. Joseph Scriven was an Irishman, born in 1819. He was a man well acquainted with grief. Joseph fell for a lovely young woman, but on the eve of their wedding, she accidentally drowned. In his grief, Joseph began to wander, hoping to somehow forget his sorrow. He finally settled in Canada, and and years later, he fell in love again. Planned to marry a, a wonderful Canadian woman, but again, Tragedy struck. His fiancé died after contracting pneumonia. And the grief was overwhelming. Yet in 1855, in a letter to his elderly mother living back in Ireland, he was able to write these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus all our sins, all of our griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Here's something else. Pray with thanksgiving and intercession. Now, Paul didn't, he didn't deny we're going to have hard times. I mean, let's be honest. We all know we're going to have hard times, but he knew that we can still give thanks. And so when we pray, we thank him. We thank him for who he is, We thank him for what he's done. In fact, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, to give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But note that Paul said to do that through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Now, in the original text, that word petition, it means to make an urgent request of God to meet a need. And that's a that's a, a prayer that that Paul's telling us we should all pray he knew that we can confidently offer our prayers and our petitions with Thanksgiving knowing that God is faithful that he's gonna provide and so he says with petition and Thanksgiving present your requests to God Now, the the Greek there could literally be translated, present your requests facing God. Think of it this way, you know, facing God, it pictures fellowship with God. So when a Christian is out of fellowship with God, his or her back, you know, figuratively speaking, is turned toward God. But when a person is in right fellowship with God, the Christian faces God. And so as we turn to Him in prayer, we've got to make sure we're committed to Him, that we're in right fellowship with Him instead of turning our back on Him. And then we do this. We pray in faith. When we pray, we not only thank Him for who He is and for what He's done, but we give Him thanks in advance for all the things that He's going to do Trusting that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy, that he has good plans for us because he's a good God. And so we fight worry by praying with faith in God's promises. And what's the promise God gives us if we'll follow Paul's prescription here in verse six? Peace. Paul has given us a prescription for peace in the heart but that also means something else it means number three a promise of peace for the church look at verse 7 and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus see once we pray once we give our burden to God not just once but we continue to offer that burden to him daily in prayer as we seek him but once we do that then we can be blanketed by his peace. See, that's not only a personal prescription for the person with a troubled heart, but it's a collective prescription for a church that has a troubled fellowship. And so when anxiety overwhelms you, Christian, you've got this wonderful promise, a promise that is just as applicable to a church that's feeling overwhelmed. Now, I want you to note the quality of this promise. First of all, it's a dependable promise. Look at verse 7. It is the peace of God. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, this is a powerful peace that God's got a monopoly on because it is the peace of God. It is God's peace. It is a a quality of peace that you and I can never humanly achieve. We can't even possibly hope to describe it. Paul says that it surpasses all understanding. So it's a dependable peace that will guard our hearts, but will also guard our, our minds. It's a peace that's only delivered in Christ Jesus. And nothing else. It's a dependable promise to a troubled church that God has a dependable peace for that church. One final thought that needs to be added to that it's also a conditional promise. Verses 8 and 9 Paul told the Philippians that for peace to return to their troubled fellowship, there's some conditions that were going to have to be met. You know, conditions to help. Activate God's promise to guard our hearts and our minds look at verse 8 finally brothers and sisters whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there is any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy dwell on these things do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the god of peace will be with you god has blessed his church with his word and he uses it as a means of purifying our minds jesus praying about believers in john 17:17 17, 17, said sanctify them by your truth your word is truth And so we need God's Word to saturate our thoughts and minds so that they'll be renewed, so that the things that might cause us anxiety, worry, grief might actually be kept at bay. And so in verses 8 and 9, Paul's urging the church to, to think on admirable things. He wanted disciples of Jesus to focus on those things that are true, not untrue. Things that are honorable, not dishonorable. Things that are just, not unfair. Things that are pure, not obscene. Things that are lovely, not unlovely. Things that are commendable, not morally wrong. Things that are morally excellent, not corrupt. Praiseworthy, not shameful. These are the things that we dwell, that we focus on. And so there's a promise of peace here. But we can't overlook the conditions that nest, must be met, you know, if both we individually and the church collectively are going to have that peace. There's a famous statue of a great lion. It was erected in 1826. It stands on a, on a big hill in Belgium overlooking the battlefield of Waterloo. In fact, it was forged from the guns of Britain's foes, guns that were captured in 1815. And the beast's mouth is open, and, and it ha- kind of snarls through its teeth over the battlefield. Uh, Walter Baxendale, who was an early 20th century pastor, he visited the site and he wrote this. When I saw it one spring noonday, a bird had built its nest in the lion's mouth. Twining the twigs of the downy bed, where the fledglings nestled around the very teeth of the metal monster, and from the very jaws of the bronze beast, the chirp of the swallows seemed to twitter forth the signal of peace. You see, that's a really fitting picture of the peace of Christ. Here's Paul, riding from inside the snarling teeth of a Roman prison, and he's undaunted. He's signaling to the believers at Philippi, rejoice! Whatever your circumstances, rejoice! And embrace indescribable peace. Remember the big idea. In difficult times, rejoice. Pray, give thanks as God grants us peace and guards our lives in Christ Jesus. See, when we focus on and trust in Christ, we can have peace. When we focus on and trust in Christ, we can have joy. Okay, so what are some things that we need to do to make sure that we're not missing out on those two wonderful gifts. Let me give you some practical suggestions. First of all, make a prayer list, all right? What are some of the biggest challenges facing you right now? Make a list and every day, pray about each and every one of those items on that list and ask the Lord in the process to grant you His peace to grant you His graciousness. After you do that, memorize. Memorize Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And I know you can. Our children did. They sang it to you this morning. See, there's not a better way to get a proper perspective on the challenges of life than the importance of giving our burdens to God. Not a better way to do that than to saturate our minds with this very scripture, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Here's something else, make yourself accountable. If you're struggling with worry-driven thoughts, seek out a trusted friend that you can really be accountable to with those thoughts. You know, specifically, what are some of the darker thoughts, things that you're really struggling with, things that are occupying your mind that really need to be driven out? in favor of something that's more noble. Turn to that trusted friend or advisor for accountability and wise counsel. Church has, Paul has given us a very clear path from problems to peace. Now, the starting point for that peace, it goes back a lot further than you might think. 700 years before Christ was even born. Isaiah wrote about him, saying that he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah 53, five and six. You see, we are all, every single one of us, sinners in need of a savior. But because of what he did for us on the cross, not only can we be forgiven, not only can we be made right with God and have right fellowship with him, but we can know the peace of God. Peace that was purchased for you and me by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you and you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.